Cheers. Cheers. So do you want to tell everyone it's it's the 23rd of March and what's just happened? Well, we are broadcasting about one hour after lockdown. Yeah. So you and me even being together tonight is a little bit illegal. <laughs> you came round. <laughs> it's not illegal. Kind you of. came round before lockdown. Yes. And then Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, announced that we weren't allowed to see each other anymore. But I was already here, so... Uh, this is the last time we're going to see each other for who knows how until long. lockdown finishes. But do so, not worry, guys. I yeah. know that all of you out there at home are worried that you're not going to get to listen to the wife. <laughs> I, I think at this moment in time, that is exactly their number exactly. one concern. But we would like to reassure you that we have taken the time tonight to figure out how to do this podcast remotely. We have. It's been quite fortunate, actually, that I was here when it's happened and. Uh, we are very lucky to have some equipment that I can borrow. So we're going to try and record the next episode remotely. We are. We're going to keep this baby rolling. Yeah, we're going to do our absolute damn best because we're having too much fun, aren't we? Learning and we don't want this coronavirus to defeat us. No, and we, d- we know that all of you guys are counting on this to get you through <laughs> the hard times of lockdown. I'm sure all three listeners. Mum, thank you. <laughs> all of you who need to escape the house because you've got little shits at home. Oh, yeah. And you need that one hour of exercise. We're going to give you some support with that. I actually think that's really important because I think everybody... I, I saw one Facebook post the other day, I won't name who it was, but who said, uh, uh, it's been half an hour now and I already want to put my child in the bin. <laughs> I think I was about 15 minutes this morning. Yeah. And speaking of which, because Louise has two small children, God love you, and I don't, I'm going to be doing the third of the stories, of my stories, although Louise has only done one, because, well, you have other shit to deal with in life, and I have a little more leisure time. So. Caroline is probably going to do the line share of this podcast, which <laughs> you'll probably all be grateful for, because I think she does a better delivery. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> I'm not sure it's true, but thank you anyway. So, are you ready to talk about Gertrude Bell? Gertrude Bell. I can't wait to talk about Gertrude Bell. Have you heard of it? No. No. (laughs) Okay. So, Gertrude Bell is known as Gertrude of Arabia, Queen of the Desert. She sounds awesome. She was pretty awesome. So, she was born in 1868 and lived until 1926. And she, believe it or not, is from Washington County, Durham. No way. I know. And I promise I don't want all of these to be like local links. Local. Um, But I just can't resist it when I see it. I'm like, oh, yes. And I'm kind of ashamed that we've not heard of her, but... Gertrude Bell. Gertrude Bell. So when was she born? 1868 until 1926. And she is the wife who created modern day Iraq. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. You've just blown my mind. Yeah, I know. Me too. When I saw this, I was like, really? This, so this can't be right. She was born in the 1860s. Yep. In Washington, County Durham. Yep. Down the road from us. Correct. And she created modern day Iraq. Yes. More or less. The country in the Middle East. Yes. You're going to have to yes. elaborate on Let's all of go. this. <laughs> Are you intrigued? 
Okay, so this is going to be, and this is just a warning right now, that this is going to be about the Middle East situation over there during the war and stuff, and it is quite complicated and confusing, and there will 100% be questions you're going to want to ask that I am not going to know the answer to. There's a lot about First World War, Britain, Russian imperialism, and a lot of oil stuff that... I just, I don't know. It makes me feel like I shouldn't have drunk whiskey before this. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to talk you through it, but we're more interested in the wife, the woman, Absolutely. than the oil, aren't we? Let's face it. And it is quite an amazing story. So how did you discover this woman? Okay. How I discovered this woman is that my partner, Chris, who is far more well-read than I am, just happened to be reading a book, which I should totally credit, which I think is called... It's either the Silk Road or the Spice Road. Mm. And it's kind of a history of sort of trade and stuff that, frankly, I find a little dull, but Chris absolutely loves. And he came across how Gertrude Bell was hugely influential in the Middle East during all of this sort of trading situation that I just described with the oil and whatnot during the First World War. And he told me about her. and And he said, I think she sounds like maybe a good candidate for your podcast. And when he told me about her, I was like... Yes, yes, she is. Well done, Chris. Well done, Chris. Shout out to Chris. (laughs) Okay, so I will get on to it, but just to summarise, that Gertrude Bell is the wife who not only defined Iraq, she was also an archaeologist, an explorer, a diplomat, and a spy. So Gertrude's grandfather was Sir Isaac Lothian Bell. So again, she has had rather a sort of wealthy, decent upbringing. Uh, He was a member of parliament who worked alongside the prime minister of the time, Benjamin Disraeli. Disraeli? Oh, I do love the times of Disraeli and Gladstone. (laughs) I know hardly anything about her. I'm so ashamed. She grew up in Redcar in Yorkshire. Just down the road. Yes, indeed. And I believe she is commemorated down there. So her family home a few years ago, they did try to turn into a museum. Didn't go very far. But there are other museums round and about this sort of northern part of the world that do remember her. So her father was a businessman and industrialist called Sir Thomas Hugh Bell. And her mother, Mary, unfortunately died in 1871 after giving birth to her younger brother. We don't know much about her, which seems to be, unfortunately, a common story, doesn't it? They lose their mothers yep. in, a, in their childhood. Yeah, afraid so. Uh, it was too common back then. So her upbringing was all about how to be a proper young lady. So the correct way to open and close doors was one example given. Embroidery. Yes. Singing. <laughs> Almost certainly, but certainly neat handwriting. Although apparently that particular lesson never really took because her handwriting was dreadful. We have a lot of correspondence from her. She would have been a doctor now then. I reckon, yeah. Yeah, With handwriting. Handwriting like that. <laughs> so she comes of age in the 1880s and you can totally picture this, can't you? She would have been a debutante in a, a cute little white dress with bows on it. Like she would have been high-born debutante girly girl. I wonder if uh, the music of the 1880s is like the music of the 1980s. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it's almost comparable, isn't it? Um, So her job at this time would have been going to balls, excuse me, flirting, flirting, looking for a suitable husband. But not Gertrude. Our Gertrude said, no, I'm going to go to college. Now, at this time, going to college, well, she was allowed, but because it's Victorian England, um, it will be late uh, Victorian period. She 
is allowed to go to the college, but only under strict circumstances. So a chaperone, not a chaperone. She was allowed to go into certain classes, but in some of them, women who were in the class had to turn around and face the opposite direction away from the lecturer so that they couldn't distract the lecturer or the other men. In the By class. being a woman. Correct. Wow. And they weren't allowed to interact or ask questions the way that the boys in the class could. So she goes to Lady Margaret Hall, which is one of the only colleges in Oxford that did actually accept women. So she went to Oxford University. She did. And somehow she becomes the first woman to graduate with a first class honours degree in modern history at Oxford. From Oxford. Wow. So good for you. She's the first one. So it wasn't easy for her, but she had quite a well-off, progressive sort of family who supported her and were behind her. Now, she also had an uncle who was a British minister, a sort of ambassador to Iran. So she had an early interest in travel and the sort of Middle East area. And she actually travelled to Tehran to hang out with him after she graduated in 1892. So she's just graduated. And what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to look for a husband at home? No, I'm going to travel to Iran and hang out with the sort of ministerial folk out there. With my uncle? Yes. She was courageous. She was. She was really an adventurer. And you'll like this. She was massively into climbing. So she loved to just get up on a mountain, even though she was told, you're a woman, there's no way you can, Uh you know, you're going to die out there. She was so frustrated by the lack of appropriate clothing for women that apparently, like in climbing, like climbing wear, I mean, you've you've done a lot of climbing, Uh haven't you? And you know the sort of clothing that's appropriate. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, shoes and sort of... It's technical. Yeah, it's it's very technical. What do I know? I'm not exercisey at all. Um, She wore her undergarments to climb. Because they wouldn't restrict her. Yeah. 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 And because she was just so annoyed. Like, I'm not going to... I'm not going to put up with I'm this. I'm not going to climb in a bustle. And I'm going to climb anyway, is what she was I saying. I love this woman already. I know. She was fearless. She was a keen mountaineer around the Alps. And in fact, she recorded 10 first ascents in the Alps. So she Whoa. was the first woman to get up 10 of these. First person. First person. To get up 10 of these peaks. Um, so she was certainly the most successful female mountaineer of her time. And she also has uh, a previously uncharted peak named after her and where is this so that is in oh i don't know but it's called gertrude spitzer makes me think it's probably german Mm -hmm. or austria oh yeah it could be i have to look that up one time though on another mountain a blizzard hit and she spent 50 five zero hours hanging on a rope on the side of this mountain before she and her sort of Sherpa, I don't know Sherpas, that's not right, but you know, her accompanying villagers, locals, um, could could get back. She spent 50 hours on a rope. Yeah, she so did. So that's two and a half days? Well, it's two, two days, isn't it? And she had frostbite on her hands and her feet. But then a couple of years later, she scaled the Matterhorn. So she was not going to stop. Oh, this woman kicked ass. Yeah, she did. So she liked climbing and she liked exploring. So she spent a good amount of time exploring Arabia, which at the time was largely uncharted. You know, people didn't have really maps of it in any detail. And what constituted Arabia? Well, I suppose it's the United Arab Emirates or part 
I'm part of it, at least. I don't know exactly compared to modern day, but certainly Middle East. But this was at a time, and this is where it gets a bit, I don't know, uh, where maybe I won't have the answers. This is at a time when the Germans were trying to take control of the Middle East, and it was all to do with oil and all of those things that I mentioned earlier. So she travelled through the deserts about two decades before World War I. The Germans were still, they were starting to move in at the same time as this. She herself chose to learn Farsi and Arabic, and she was fluent in both. And she went round all the local tribes who came to really respect and appreciate her because she learned their local dialects and customs and could speak to them and she would ask their opinion. And later in life, she would she was really a champion for these local tribes people having their voice heard in all the proceedings. And she learned all the different dialects and vernacular. Yeah. yeah. She kicked ass. I know. She's a real badass. So she was an archaeologist in the Middle East for about a decade. So she's wandering around the deserts. Picture Lawrence of Arabia and all of that. And she's on her horse, sweeping through these uncharted desert, you know, meeting these locals. It's quite dangerous. She's a woman on her own, you know. Yeah, I'm loving this woman. She's amazing. She did, however, carry around with her a whole ton of silver cutlery, tablecloths... Even a bath. So <laughs> so you can take the woman out of the north, <laughs> yeah. but you can't take the north out of the woman, even though it doesn't really work in that context. Yeah. You can take the upper class, you can take the woman out of the upper class, yes. but you can't take the upper class out of the woman. One must have one's bath. And that suggests <laughs> she had servants with her carrying I reckon. her yeah. silver cutlery and her bath. She may have paid the locals, I don't know, but yes, yeah, certainly she she wasn't alone, let's put it that way. She wasn't exactly pulling that bath. <laughs> Just because I'm climbing mountains and riding around deserts doesn't mean I don't have to have my bath every night, Jeeves. Quite right. So then... World War One came along. And where was she when it started? She was over there. So Gertrude was responsible for drawing up the border between modern-day Iraq and Jordan. So she basically, instrumentally, she shaped the Middle East as we look at it on the map today. Along with, seemingly, Lawrence of Arabia... So this is where she gets the name Gertrude of Arabia. You've heard of Lawrence of Arabia, right? Absolutely. Well, particularly because films are made about Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, there was one particularly famous sort of black and white film, wasn't Uh, there? Peter O'Toole, I think. Is that who it was? I think so. I don't think I've ever actually seen it. I'm quite ashamed. Okay. So Lawrence of Arabia, what was happening there was Russia, Germany and Britain were all trying to, at this point, fight for control for this oil. And I'm kind of paraphrasing from Chris at this point because he gets it and I don't. Britain got more scared of Germany, so they allied with Russia, which forced Germany and Persia to become allies. And then there was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, Mm -hmm. which we've all heard of. Yes. Franz Ferdinand. It's a band, isn't it? Yeah. And the war kicked off. That was what precipitated the war. That's pretty much the only thing I remember from high school history. (laughs) And he was assassinated by a Serb? Oh, you see, that's two things I would have to remember from high school history, and I don't. Um, So that was the war has now started. Um, And at the end of the First World War, we tried to draw up some sort of agreement about the Middle East. So... During the war, Lawrence of Arabia was basically trying to create these insurgencies with the local people there against the Germans. 
so that they could get back Allied control away from Germany. So that's what Lawrence of Arabia did. And Gertrude came in sort of towards the end of that, and she actually worked with the real historical person, Lawrence of Arabia. So that's partly why she gets the name Gertrude Gertrude of of Arabia. And she was part of military intelligence. So she was the only woman who was working for the British government in the Middle East where they're trying to get rid of this German Ottoman Empire at the time. And because she can speak all the languages, she's valuable. Yeah, so she's working together with Lawrence of Arabia to recruit all these local people, and she knows these people. Why is there not a film about this woman already? There is. I'll come on to that later. It's got Nicole Kidman in it, though, but I'll come on to it later. I know. How did I never hear it? How did I not know about this film with Nicole Kidman playing? It's amazing. Gertrude Bell? Yes. So she's working with Lawrence of Arabia and then the British government eventually recruit her to work as a spy because she's so in tune with and connected to this region that she becomes a power player actually because she knows all these people, she's got all the skills and she's damn clever. So she, and she's also got diplomatic connections, of course, with her uncle. She's Mm -hmm. well qualified for this. And she becomes a power player in post-war negotiations. Like I said, at the end of World War I, we're trying to reshape the way that the Middle East works and looks and all redraw the borders. Okay, so going back to the, I know I'm jumping about a little bit here, just the way I've put my notes, I'm afraid. So when World War One broke out in August 19, she had actually just arrived home, so here in the UK, okay. from her explorations and her adventures in Arabia. She's still single, right? She doesn't have a husband no kind of tying her down. Definitely not. I can't imagine her exploring and doing all these things with one, can you? No. Is that in itself sexist of us, do you think? But, you know, she had children to look after and the job is Mm. usually put on the woman to look after the children, isn't it, in in that era? It's hard to picture her leading this quite, at times, quite dangerous, Mm -hmm. exotic life, isn't it? Okay, so she started working for the Red Cross at the start of the war, but she was asked to go to Cairo to make maps for the army, along with some other archaeologists. And this was the makings of the group that was this military intelligence group in the Middle East and that's how she sort of got into Mm. the job. I bet they were very work hard, play hard. You can just imagine it. (laughs) Do you think so? Oh yeah. (laughs) All those Arabian parties there. I bet they were drinking a lot. (laughs) I don't know. I like to think so. Probably watched too many spy films. (laughs) So when the British occupied Baghdad, Gertrude moved into Baghdad in 1917 and she had actually quite an important role there for the British administration. And this is the point at which she starts to become responsible for shaping modern-day Iraq. She was the first woman to write a white paper for Parliament, ever. For British Parliament? Yes, about the situation in the Middle East. What is defined as a white paper? So this is the sort of official legal parliamentary documentation that you take to Parliament and say, this is what we're proposing and we'd like it to become law, I think. Okay, and then that's kind of debated amongst ministers and... Yeah. Okay. I, I think so. Guys, write in. Tell us what how far so wrong we are. She wrote the first white paper. First woman to oh, write woman to a okay. white paper for Parliament. So she attends the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, which, again, I think as a woman is probably quite a big deal. Mm. And then in March 1921, she attended the Cairo Conference 
with Winston Churchill, who is now coming to view her as a co- a, an important colleague, you know, not just some woman that's being pulled along, but... Someone who can actually contribute to the debate. Yeah, who's actually a key pivotal person a in this. A key player. Absolutely. Like a key worker right now in coronavirus times. <laughs> Even more important than that, I dare say. Almost like, like Rishi Sunak. Yes, yes. She is Rishi Sunak. She is, exactly Not that, that he deserves to be. Uh... <laughs> so at this point, the government, well, the people who are involved in this sort of group of people out in the Middle East, including Gertrude, need to decide who's going to be the new king of what was known as Mesopotamia. Okay. That is a sort of combination of a bit of Syria, a bit of Iraq, a bit of Baghdad. I'm not really sure in total. Mesopotamia seems to be known as the birthplace of civilization. I'm doing those those quote air quotes things. And they need to decide who's going to be the new king and what the borders should look like and what flag there should be. So Gertrude thinks that there's this guy, what's his name? Anyway, the guy that she thinks should be the new king. So she basically plucks the new king yeah. for Iraq or for Mesopotamia. She says, I think this guy can do it and I want him. And everyone goes, yeah, all right, Gertrude. Wow. And he gets the job, right? And better than that, they need a new flag. Gertrude Bell designs the flag for, I believe, modern day Iraq. The flag use... that still exists. Yes, yes. She designed that flag. Correct. So they set up this new sort of country and she draws herself the southern borders of what this new country is going to look like. She has designed what the size and shape of that country is going to be. And she's designed the flag. She's chosen who the king is going to be. I mean, this is major stuff. It's huge. Yes. And do Iraq credit Gertrude with all of this now? Oh, great, great. Actually... Yes, they do. Um, And the only reason that I can say that with some confidence is because I watched, of all random things, this um, BBC Look North episode where in 2016 they were they were trying to save her family home um and it was like one of these local people saying oh we you know they always save local places of interest for men but they never do it for important women mm-hmm. and they save this woman's home and there was this iraqi lady appeared on the show who has taken on the work at the national iraq museum that gertrude bell set up in her later life And then the legacy has gone on and on. This place is still going today. And quite famously was sacked by the... Oh, no, I'm going to get this dreadfully wrong. When they had the massive conflict out there, there was a huge sacking of all the sort of important national monuments and stuff. And a lot of items from this museum were stolen. But anyway, on this episode of Look North, the woman who is now in charge of that national museum was on there talking about how amazing Gertrude Bell was and that she's an Iraqi lady and how she needs to be credited for all the amazing work that she's done out there and how much she loved the Iraqi people. So she has just created a country. Almost she's owned it single-handedly, right? Yeah. And she's This ri- is your king, this is your flag, yeah. These are your borders. <laughs> this is Iraq. Yeah. There you go, guys. Pretty much. At this point, she writes to her dad, and I'm going to read you a quote from her letter because it's too good. Dearest father, I'm having by far the most interesting time in my life. So this is in November 1918. 
It doesn't happen often that people are told that their future as a state is in their hands and asked what they would like. <laughs> so she's she's in charge, and people are just going, "What do you think, Gertrude?" Wow. Yeah. She However, had a lot of respect. She sure did. But in 1919, she can see that things aren't working out as she had hoped, and that these other people she's working with had planned. The British government are still in control of this new king and stuff or they say they, they're meant to be the idea was that the government would still be directed by britain so we really were still kind of controlling them we kind of probably wanted the oil let's be honest about it you know we were not brilliant so the king history. was a puppet yes i think so but in 1919 he started to i think start to flex a little bit and it was all i don't know and the brits were like uh no 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 we don't like this yeah. You're a king only in name? Yeah, and the things that we were implementing there were not really for the best of those people living out there, I think. It never so is. She, in 1919, is quoted as having described the situation out there in the Middle East as a horrible model in and a nightmare in which you foresee all the horrible things which are going to happen and can't stretch out your hand to prevent and by the mid-1920s, apparently it really was a bit of a holy mess out there. And it became apparent that Britain was actually quite poisonous to the region. And actually, it would be far better if the British weren't there at all. Mm-hmm. It is considered that she committed suicide. In Iraq? Yes. So the reason I'm jumping, and I'll go into that a bit more detail later, but I do wonder if if she'd almost single-handedly... I mean, that's an exaggeration, but, you know, she would have felt, and she was a pivotal person in setting up this new state. And if she saw it going a bit to shit... She maybe felt betrayed? Yeah. Or... Responsible. Responsible. I wonder. I mean, there's lots of reasons why a person might commit suicide, Mm. but, you know, she's an intelligent woman, obviously not swayed or put down easily. And you wonder if, if she saw that things were really going into decline out there. Did she feel mm. really bad about it? I don't know. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So basically, they carved up m- most of this sort of area between Britain and France. But Britain were all being really selfish. There was rioting happening oh, at one it's point. Not like Britain. And at one selfish. point, the locals wanted the they even wanted the USA to come in and sort it out because we weren't treating them very well. So- they wanted the USA to rescue them from the Brits. Whoa, yeah. that's messed up, right? <laughs> yeah. I bet they regret that now. Yeah. But she was she was still definitely respected by the people. She earned the respect of all of the peoples of Mesopotamia. And she was often addressed as Kutan, which is K-H-U-T-A-N, which means queen in Persian. Wow. Or respected lady in Arabic. So... They really liked her. Mm-hmm. So after this, after World War One, after she's helped set up this new Iraq kingdom, she then became passionate about this national museum, which I already told you about. The reason she wanted to do this was because she had this archaeology experience in the country for like a decade. And she knew that there were all these amazing artifacts that she really felt passionate about that they should stay in that country. Normally what would happen is, of course, like colonial style, we would take those lovely artefacts we found elsewhere and we just ship them back home so that we can enjoy them in Britain. But she didn't want that to happen. 
she wanted them to stay there. So she did have a bit of an unfortunate love affair at this point. I love an unfortunate love affair. I know, we all do. But I don't think it was quite interesting enough to really go into any detail about. It was it like... It probably wasn't worthy of her. No, it, it basically wasn't. It just didn't work out. Some people argue that perhaps her suicide had something to do with the love affair, but I don't like to see it that way. So she unfortunately died just a few days before her 58th birthday. She didn't leave a suicide note, so I guess, you know, it's not 100% for certain it was suicide, but she did have a significant overdose of sleeping pills, and it, it is considered to have been intentional, generally. And what year did she... That is 1926. Okay. So it's... Oh, Gertrude. It's debated what drove her to that. I, I kind of can see... I mean, 1926, this is the time when it, it really is a hot mess out there. And you can see she would feel perhaps her advice and her well-intentioned actions out there were perhaps misguided at the time. And she would feel very guilty about that, potentially. But also, she did have persistent health problems of some sort. I don't know what exactly. And her brother had also recently died. And that seems to me... You can see there's mm. a number of things that perhaps could have led to it. So she's buried in a British cemetery in Baghdad now, which is wow. where she'd love to be. So I just want to talk about her as a feminist for a second before we get onto her legacy. I don't really feel I can call her a feminist, actually, because she actively opposed the suffrage movement. Why? I know, isn't that surprising? A woman like this... That's like the female MPs that voted against tampon tax, or as in voted to keep tampon tax. I don't understand it. Like, how does it... It's like a, um, a gender traitor. Like, yeah. why would she... She actually became the honorary secretary of the Anti-Suffrage League in 1909. That is messed up. I mean, I was talking to Chris about this, and I wonder if it isn't that whole, well, I'm fine, and I'm doing my own, own thing, and I'm having no problems. I really can't see what everyone's complaining about. You know, because she's, mm -hmm. she's she's too flying. rich to understand. Yeah, and she's successful. She's not seeing any problems. She doesn't as a need the vote. She's getting enough. Is it uh, that? What she actually says is that. Well, she argues that the the vast majority of women in her time lacked the education and the knowledge of the world that was needed in order to understand and meaningfully participate in political debate. So give them the education, right? And suffrage at the same time. So in the 70s, when we had the women's movement and we started digging up all these amazing women that history had forgotten, she was overlooked in the 70s because of this, because mm. of her anti-suffrage stance. And you can see why. So she's a problem. It's white privilege, isn't it, as well? I think so. It's rich white privilege. Yeah. She had all these opportunities because she was wealthy. Mm -hmm. She was white. Yes, she was a woman, but I think her class her class mm -hmm. helped to rise above it yeah it's disappointing isn't it mm, it's very disappointing yeah it's like she just wasn't interested in the progression of women she was interested in herself perhaps herself and the progression of the middle east but yeah but she didn't care about the wider group of women as a whole no very odd okay so there's a, she, there's a museum at kirk Leatham which is in the North York Moors. And there is an exhibition about her there, which is cool. Should we go and see this exhibition after if, lockdown? Ask us that if we ever get out of lockdown, I would love to. I'd love to have a little tour of our sort of right. podcast women. That's a road trip. Um, so that's a permanent exhibition, which is good. 
Um, the dilapidated home that I mentioned a couple times was in Redka, uh, Redka, but I don't believe it was ever sorted. I think it's either it's run down or I, at one time it was a hotel, but I think it's been shut. Such a shame. But if you go online and just search for Gertrude Bell Redka, you will see pictures of her home. I can't remember the exact name of it. We'll put it up on the website. So in 2015, so fairly recently was this film starring Nicole Kidman. Wow. Yeah, it was called Queen of the Desert. But the film... What year was it? 2015. It wasn't even that long ago. No, it wasn't, was it? I'd not heard of it either. But it got poor reviews, and it didn't go down very well with the critics. And interestingly, it sidestepped many of the amazing things that Gertrude Bell actually did and achieved in favour of focusing on her two ill-fated romances oh how boring i know who cares about that wouldn't you think nicole kidman would know better i'm disappointed she did so much more i know so i was totally gonna watch this film and then i read that i was like oh <laughs> no. oh it's focusing on her love. relationship with men love life mm-hmm. not the fact that she was a a mountaineer mm-hmm. climber cartographer i mean it must have covered these things to some extent but yeah. They were the background, but the the foreground was the the It seems that way. Yeah. So there you go. There was also, and you will love this, in 2017 just, there was a documentary called Letters from Baghdad, which is based on her correspondence, narrated by Tilda Swinton. Yes, Tilda. Yes. And it seems the RSC even have a blog about her. So she's definitely celebrated and well-known. I would love to see this documentary. We're going to have to look that up. Apparently this, the documentary, is much more... A lot of research went into this. They've got um, sort of family members and acquaintances that she came into contact with. And there are a lot of um, her actual writings, letters, are the things being read out. And her correspondence, all of... Well, I think all of her personal... Certainly I damn lot of it, of her personal correspondence, her letters, is held at Newcastle University in a special collection. All of her correspondence? Yeah. And 65 metres of library. So her working library, all of her books that she owned, are owned and held in the library at Newcastle University, where both of us went to university. At the Robinson Library? I think it might be in the Hatton Library, which is part of the main university buildings it's a special collection they probably get it out we'll have to ask uh, that's amazing the friend angela who works at the robinson i had no idea no idea and if you go on the newcastle university website there's loads of stuff about her there's all um almost like lesson plans and like summaries of information about her for key stage one right through to key stage four so people the kids do get taught about her well certainly there's the option to learn about her yeah if teachers want to yeah but we went to Newcastle and we didn't know about her, so... I've never heard about this woman till tonight. And perhaps part of it is because she was written out of a lot of history. I mean, for example, there was this one... There was a 1983 biography of Winston Churchill called The Last Lion. And there is a really famous photograph of Lawrence of Arabia and Winston Churchill. And in the middle, Gertrude Bell. Yeah. And... Underneath the caption says, T.E. Lawrence, Winston Churchill, and friend. She doesn't even get her name mentioned. No, she's just a friend. She's not identified. No. How was she identified later then? They were just able to identify her image? 
Well, I mean, I, I don't know why this... I mean, this guy knew who she was. I don't know why he chose friend. to write her out. It's too weird. I wonder why Kate Fox didn't mention her. Hmm. Interesting point. Kate, we know you're listening. So we'll, uh, we'll oh, put no. all of this in an email to you. We know that you're going to be really keen to include her in your... You're so cheeky. I love it. Your PowerPoint it. presentation. <laughs> uh, and I've written here. This is good. So while Belle has been called the female Lawrence of Arabia, understandably. Oh, and by the way, there is this amazing photograph of her that I'm going to totally put on the website. And it is like she's, if you imagine a desert, it's black and white picture, a desert scene behind her. There's a couple of sort of collapsing ancient columns in the background. She's on a horse with her skirt sort of flowing over the side of the horse with a sort of safari hat with a, a scarf uh-huh. around it. And she just is the picture of, it's like Lawrence of Arabia, but in female form. However, there are people who quite rightly say that instead of her being the female Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence should have been called the male, male Gertrude La- Bell. I like that. Yes, me too. Uh, and also, <laughs> Bell wrote, after she first met Lawrence, she wrote down... An interesting boy. He's going to make a traveller. <laughs> He's going to make a traveller? Yeah. As though he will become a traveller? Yes. One day he'll be almost as good as I am. When he grows up. <laughs> oh, here's the name. Red Barnes in Redcart is the name of her family home, which is now Red dilapidated. So, but she was born in County Durham. Yeah, in Washington. So she was born in Washington CD, not Washington DC. Oh my word. That oh, is go. clever, oh, Louise. Yeah. Did you just make that up now? Oh, yeah, it just came to me. You're amazing. County Durham. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, did you really just make that up? Just yeah, like, well. I just thought of it. CD, not DC. <laughs> I was like, hang on, there's quite a lot of similarities. <laughs> County Durham and... Yeah, let's just enjoy DC. this moment yeah. for as long as possible. Because I managed I, to do that after two massive glasses of whiskey. I'm not sure I've ever been more proud of you than in that <laughs> moment. Okay, so Newcastle Library, they have these 65 metres of her working library. They've got 7,000 negatives of her photographs that she took. 7,000? Yeah. All the negatives? Yeah. They've got tons of personal correspondence, they've got items of hers, and there's a whole area of the website dedicated to it, as I mentioned. Now, as alumni, are we allowed to go in and request to view these things? I don't know, but we should totally find out. I would love to look at her negatives. We should absolutely let the university know about this little project of ours i would love to so the only thing that is left is the question of the museum which she opened in 1926 the year she died the same year that she died so she spent four years assembling personally assembling all these local artifacts um, that had been excavated either by her or by European and American archaeologists who wanted to take them out of the country. She gathered them. She created this national museum. And saved and preserved them. Yep. And to Baghdad. It's considered to have one of the most important Mesopotamian collections in the entire world, but was, as I said earlier, famously looted in 2003 after the US invasion. But they've got a lot of it back and it's reopened now. And I'll share a photograph of her. And that is Gertrude Bell. That was a great story, Caroline. You like her? Yeah. I didn't know anything about this woman. I didn't even know her name. 
No, I, she was a complete surprise to me as well. And I'm delighted. And thank you, Chris, for telling us yeah. about her. Well done. And I hope, guys, that those of you that have heard of her before will write in and let us know how you found out about her. Because, you know, I, I mean, I wonder, we went to the university that has her entire collection and we didn't know. So if you know about her, I'd love to know how you found out about her. And also, what are we asking people to write in with, Louise? Last week, we asked them for um, stories, anecdotes of wives who did something in your history, family history, or Mm -hmm. that you know. Um, If you've got anything that you think our listeners will enjoy hearing about, we'd love to know. Do get in touch. We now have a website, Lou. Whoa. We've taken this to the next level. We actually have a website and an email address. So you can now officially email podcast at thewifewho.com. Wife, of course, being W-Y-F. We have a Facebook page. Do we have an Instagram account? We have an Instagram account. I don't know. We have to figure out how to use that one, though. Can we tweet? I'm not sure if we can tweet or not. Can you? Do you know how to tweet? I don't use it. No, I'm in like the it. age bracket where it's just a yeah. little bit... Mm, I don't know. Beyond Twitter. I think we should probably at least make sure we've registered the uh, account. But I, I'm not sure. Sh- honestly, guys, I'm not sure that we're going to check the, the Twitter. So I think go Facebook or web page. You can actually contact us on our web page. Of course, you can email us. But we're going to be sharing all the photos and the sources of every episode that we've done so far on the website and on the Facebook page too. And actually we're setting up a Facebook group because that will allow us to talk to you. So go and find the Facebook group. Join us guys. Yeah. Maybe you can make suggestions of people you'd like us to talk about. Absolutely. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Um, If you've got a good one, do let us know Uh, your anecdotes. Especially if they're local. If they're local, we're much more likely to take them on as well, yeah. So next episode, we will be on separate sites. We will. Lockdown. We'll be doing it remotely. Yep. I don't know. I'm kind of nervous about this. What about you? We'll see how the first one goes. Fortunately, we have a brilliant technical uh, support. We do. We do have an amazing guy. Technical. Some guy. (laughs) Just some guy. Guys, this is Louise's partner, and Louise's partner is amazing and has been so supportive and so helpful uh, with all the technical sound stuff. So thank you so much to you. To and Dodge. To Dodge. Are we allowed to say his name? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, we know that. Sure. We know about Chris, right? <laughs> <We> so. <do>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Chris and Dodge. Any, anything else that you think we need to add? I mean, I think we've covered it. I'm kind of frightened to say goodbye and to end this episode, though, Louise, because. Of lockdown. I don't know when I'm going to physically see you ever again. It's a scary time. Hopefully, it'll be this year. Goodness. 2020. I mean, that's genuinely a hope and not a certainty, isn't I it? I know. Let's aim to to hang out again with wine yeah. in the next few months. We'll definitely be hanging out virtually with wine, won't we, darling? I mean, <laughs> I don't want to admit this here, but we've got a bit of a plan, guys. We might actually accidentally meet in the supermarket <laughs> oh, at the God. same time. We might send a sneaky text message saying, oh, I might go to Morrison's or Waitrose, uh, uh, three o'clock sharp. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good idea, but if we do, we have to stay at least six feet apart from each other because that's the rule. We'll just kind of make eyes at each other over the the banana counter or something. Yeah, we'll we'll think about it. I only want to do it if it's socially like cool. I don't want to be encouraging everybody. Why not? not bother about being cool? Well, no, but I don't want to encourage people to do a thing that's not okay. Well, I think by the time this 
gets published will be on lockdown for Britain. You think so? Maybe. I don't think so. Let's wait and see. Thank you, everyone. Good night and good luck. Stay safe and sane out there. Yeah, stay virus free. Good night. That was amazing.